Erin Gabra on Happy St. Patrick's Day 2019. This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. from Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. The place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been done. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, All is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. Thank you for being with us this morning. As you can see, we are beginning a series in Ecclesiastes, and honestly, I've been quite intimidated about preaching uh, this particular book because it is an intimidating book, as you will find out. So thank you for being with us. I'm going to pray so that uh, God can uh, hopefully use what is a weak vessel and say something that's meaningful. So if you bow with me, uh, we're going to pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for who you are and for what you have done. Lord, we contributed absolutely nothing to our salvation, Lord, except our sin. And you did everything necessary to fix what we broke, to restore us to relationship with you and with one another and even in this world. 
And this world is quite broken, Lord. And it's easy to become distracted by the brokenness in this world, the brokenness of our bodies, the brokenness of our families, the brokenness in our communities, and it can lead us to places of despair. And this is where Ecclesiastes, perhaps, Lord, is most powerful. It amplifies all of that brokenness, and it could very easily lead us to a place of hopelessness, Lord. But I pray that you will not allow that to happen. That as we take a look at the world for what it is, and then we're reminded of the perfection that is yet to come, Lord, that we will look to the cross as the way and the truth and the life. Holy Spirit, would you do the work that only you can do, the heart work that needs to be done in all of us. Shake us, Lord, through this book, but don't let us run away from it. Father, through it, please draw us closer to you. Thank you, Holy Spirit for how you will teach us this morning. And it's in the name of our Lord and Savior we pray. Amen. So Ecclesiastes, the title of our sermon series is Everything is Empty, which gives you a little bit of a picture of the place that we are going. It's not going to be super uplifting, but I pray it'll be glorifying and redemptive. Now, in 1953, which was some time ago, uh, a novelist named Ray Bradbury wrote a dystopian novel. So dystopian means an apocalyptic kind of ugly, dark look at the world as opposed to utopian, which is perfect and glorious look at the world. So he wrote a dystopian novel titled Fahrenheit 451. How many people read that novel in high school or some other time, junior high? Great book. Um, this uh, Fahrenheit 451 is obviously a degree or, or temperature, and it's the temperature at which book paper catches fire. So if you take a book or paper and you put it in a, a room that's 451 degrees, it will light immediately because that is the temperature. Everything has a flashpoint. So as a high school English teacher for about 10 years, I used to teach this book often. And I taught it as somewhat of an accurate prediction of how the world uh, would ultimately fall apart and how the world would go. And the hero of the story is actually a fireman. Yeah, all firemen are heroes. A uh, fireman. And uh, his name is Guy Montag. And in Fahrenheit 451, which again, this, this world, this futuristic world was written in 1953. And so if you go, wow, let's see how accurate his prediction was so as I describe this world, some of the key characteristics are they have televisions the size of walls. So they hang on their walls, big TV-sized walls. Uh, um, he predicted that the radio would be listened to with a small little seashell in your ear. Oh, interesting, right? 1953. Um, Drugs were used to escape reality. Most, most medical conditions could be fixed uh, body parts could be added on, things of that nature. Uh, and everything is fireproof. Now, seems strange to have firemen in a fireproof world. And that's because firemen are no longer to uh, employed to put out fires. Instead, they are employed to burn books and to arrest those who illegally hide books. See, political correctness rules the day. 
which means it required all new ideas to be suppressed. And anything that anyone deemed was offenses to them, they would um, destroy or get rid of, no matter what it was. I'm offended by that. We need to get rid of it. Sounds very familiar to today's world. And so they were unable to engage in really kind of civil discourse through conflicting opinions, and so they just burn books, just get rid of them, burn them all, and so they allowed no kind of reading except what the government produced. And so, inspired by a few courageous individuals who were willing to die for the ideas in these books, our hero eventually rebels and he eventually escapes the city, which ultimately is going to be destroyed because of the new rebellion that's rising. So he escapes into the countryside, and there he meets a small group of what is first described as hobos, but they're really called the book people. And this small group of rebels uh, have decided to each memorize a book. In many ways, they become a book, because if you become a book and you memorize a book, that idea can never be lost and it can't be burned. They hope that one day they will be able to help mankind in the aftermath that is happening, the wars and the destruction that is occurring. And it's interesting that as you think about the author Ray Bradbury, he has Guy Montag become a particular book. And he selects the book that he believes is going to be most essential in rebuilding civilization, and that is the book of Ecclesiastes. That's what he becomes. Ecclesiastes, we'll see, is found in all kinds of literature. Uh, it's referenced all kinds of ways, directly and indirectly. It is a book of wisdom, technically. Um, be careful with that. Proverbs is wisdom. We're familiar with that kind of wisdom. But the book of Job is also wisdom, um, technically. And that's a book of great suffering, which seems to imply that wisdom is often learned through tremendous suffering. Now, ultimately, the book of Ecclesiastes is pretty unique in the Bible in that it's philosophical unlike the other books. It's a very difficult book to understand. Uh, it is in many ways a dark book, and it's a book that focuses ultimately on exceptions that we tend to ignore and not the rules or the normalcy of life. And this makes it, according to some people, um, kind of a depressing and somewhat cynical book. You're welcome. This is going to be a joy, right? But what I want to maybe push us toward is the different understanding of it, that it actually might just be one of the most honest books. In many ways, we don't expect the words that we find in this book to be found in the Bible. We almost read it and go, oh, are you allowed to say that? Like, are you allowed to think that? And if we're honest, many of the questions that Solomon ends up asking are the questions that we ask ourselves, but we don't dare whisper to other people. It's a strange book, but it's an inspired book. And by that, I mean God wants us to read these words. And it's interesting how many pastors and preachers don't preach on Ecclesiastes, partly because it's difficult and partly because it's kind of a downer or it can feel like a downer if you approach it the wrong way. 
But American author Herman Melville, who is famous for writing Moby Dick, good job, he said about Ecclesiastes that it was the truest of all books. The truest of all books. And he also said that Ecclesiastes was like a fine hammered steel of woe. Of woe. Fine hammered woe. Lament. Ugh. That's Ecclesiastes. Now, it's been said that Genesis answers the questions of origin. That Revelation answers the question of destiny. That Proverbs answers the questions of morality. But that Ecclesiastes answers the questions of meaning. In many ways, Ecclesiastes asks the questions that the Gospels, or Gospel, I should say, provides the answer for. These are the questions that go, yeah, life is, is difficult. Life is hard. Is there something else? Jesus. Now, the same author who wrote Proverbs, and if you're familiar with Proverbs, Proverbs is like a, a list of you know, moral statements of what to do and what not to do and, and things to pursue and not to pursue. And it just reads very technically and, and very clearly and, and very simply. So the guy who wrote most of Proverbs wrote Ecclesiastes, but they couldn't be any more different in the kind of wisdom that they offer. So let me read what one author described that difference to be like. He said, if Proverbs is like math, okay, math, mostly dealing in equations in which one thing adds up to equal another, then Ecclesiastes is like music, all mood with melody and tone. If Proverbs is like meteorology, giving us indicators so as to predict certain outcomes, then Ecclesiastes is like the actual weather, fickle and unpredictable in its ability to rant with storms or breathe easy with mid-morning breeze. In Proverbs, a good man plus God's love and wisdom equals a good life. Catch that? So in the book of Proverbs, take a good man, you add God's love and wisdom, and that equals a good life. Just do these things, you have a good life. In Ecclesiastes, a good man plus God's love and wisdom still dies like a beast or a fool. That's the difference. In Proverbs, wisdom gives us eyes to recognize the storm clouds and what to do in response to those storms. In Ecclesiastes, death is a piece of the tornado from which no proverbial basement can shelter us. Oh, that's what we're going to study? Now, the book of Ecclesiastes takes its title from the word that the author uses to refer to himself, the preacher. And it speaks of, uh, it's a Hebrew word that really means gatherer, and it's referring to an assembly of people who come together to worship God. So, kind of like a pastor in a church, you have this old man who is calling people to learn from him. And he's an older man, so it's kind of like gathering around grandpa who is going to impart wisdom from years of experience. And this is why the preacher is specifically addressing the younger generation. It's not written exclusively to the young, but it is written particularly to the young. 
Now, the author, as I said, is Solomon. Some disagree. Some would say that it's someone who's writing down what Solomon said. It doesn't necessarily really matter. It is someone who is recording or Solomon himself writing his wisdom, the son of David, the great king of Israel, Solomon. Now in 1 Kings, Solomon is described as being richer and wiser than all other kings on earth. So think about this. The entire book of Ecclesiastes is basically a report. It's a report on a life experience from a man with unlimited resources and unrestrained exploration. Okay? So he's in a report on a life experiment that he endeavors upon. He has unlimited resources. He can buy whatever he wants. He can do whatever he wants. And he does whatever he wants. And in the end of that experiment, he declares that all of life is meaningless. It's meaningless. Now, that can sound pretty hopeless and pretty cynical. But Ecclesiastes reads this way because Solomon wants to take us on this journey and force us to take a very raw and sober view of life. The book of Ecclesiastes forces us to truly know ourselves, to know our lives without pretension so that we might actually truly know God. And so as we go through this book, I want you to understand something that might be difficult. Not every text we read or sermon I preach is going to wrap up really nicely in this beautiful package with a little bow that says, Jesus, go. That's not Ecclesiastes. Some of the things we learn in Ecclesiastes, we're just going to have to sit in and just go, oh, that's true. And that's what makes it kind of difficult. Not everything can end with, yes, wonderful. Sometimes we've got to sit in the horrible and meaningless. And this is what largely Ecclesiastes does. At one point, Solomon even declares, I hate life. It's better not to be born at all. And you go, can you say that? That's in the Bible? Is that even allowed? Does God like smite him? Right? Now, how many of us have whispered that to ourselves at different times? Man, I just hate life. If you're honest, I think we all have at one point or another in some way or another. But it's important to understand that while Solomon's experiment does result in him hating life and whatever he means by life. He does want us to go there, but he doesn't intend for us to remain there. In fact, he wants to take us there where we begin to see how someone, why we might hate life. But he never hates God. In fact, he is calling people to fear God and to find joy in what God has given you as opposed to what He is not. 
Do you know how much time we spend as a people seeking to find joy in the things that God has not given us as individuals? And so he wants us to fear God and to find joy in our lot. And not in a way to go like, oh, that's my lot, okay. But instead to be like, no, that's my lot. And you can't do that without going into a little bit of darkness. And so as he reflects on this grand life experiment, he is going to intend, as he describes, real disillusionment. I won't ask for hands, but I bet there's a few people in here who had some disillusionment in their life. Some dissatisfaction in their life. Some disappointments in their life. Some death in their life. And he wants to take all of those things and actually direct us back to Eden. That's why the subtitle uh, is Echoes of Eden. He wants to direct us toward that which was and that which will be. We're in this in-between time right now where what was is kind of lost and what will be is not yet. But he wants us to focus on those outsides. Because it's interesting, the book of Ecclesiastes, you think about the bookends of a book. It begins when the first verse is to say, everything is empty. And you go, oh. And the book ends with, fear God in everything. Last couple of verses. Everything is empty. Fear God in everything. Emptiness, God. Emptiness, God. Emptiness, God. One is to lead to the other. So let's use chapter one. And I'm not going to probably go through this like I did an epistle where you go through every single verse. I'm going to go through larger chunks. And we're going to use chapter one to kind of introduce Ecclesiastes basically through three different phrases that the writer, the preacher, employs throughout the whole book many times. And what he's trying to do basically is reveal a simple truth, and this is kind of governing the whole thing, that life under the sun is meaningless apart from God. Life under the sun is meaningless apart from God. Why is that important? Because the majority of the people in the world who have ever been in existence are trying to find life under the sun apart from God. And Solomon's going to say, it's not possible. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, just the first few verses, says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south. Goes around to the north, around and around and around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they flow again. All things are full of weariness. All things are full of weariness, so much so a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with with hearing. So the first phrase the preacher uses, the first word really, is this word for vanity or meaningless in some translations. 
The word appears 37 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. 37 times might be an important word to think about. As I said, in the ESV, which we read, was translated uh, vanity. Uh, It's probably better understood or maybe helpful to understand it as emptiness. The word actually refers to vapor. Specifically, vapor that is exhaled in breathing, which you can kind of see on a cold day, right? Everyone knows in the Northwest, especially even in early spring these days, the coldness of breath. It goes out and you can see it. One writer describes it as the opposite of the breath of life, right? Which God breathed into us. The vapor of life that is being spoken of here is the waste product of breathing. The waste product of life, if you will. And he says, everything, all of life, everything is empty. All of life is vapor. So what does it mean to say all of life is like vapor? Well, it helps us understand what he means by meaningless. Because we can say like, well, nothing means anything. Well, he's not exactly saying that. You can see vapor, but you can't grasp vapor. He will describe our efforts in life, all the work that we do, all the stuff that we do, as like chasing after the wind. So you think about that. How successful that might be. Did you catch the wind today? Right? You chase and you run and you're grabbing at something that cannot be grabbed, yet it can be felt slightly. It moves. It affects things. But you can't hold on to it. And just when it's there, it's gone. One moment, you see it. The next moment, it disappears. Just like life. Life is short. There's nothing to hold on to. Nothing lasts. Everything that is lacks substance that actually satisfies long term. So Solomon asks this question, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What's the point of life? He's saying. All the stuff we do The answer is, it's empty. All of it's empty. Declaring life to be empty doesn't mean it's devoid of activity. He talks about the things in describing all of nature. He starts with the earth and the sun, how it rises and falls, and the earth is going round and the sea keeps moving, but there's no real progress. Stuff is happening but nothing's really ever accomplished. It's like being on a gerbil wheel. Just go round and round and round and round and you go nowhere. He says there's no real profit because it's just a cycle of life and death every generation. It's interesting. I was thinking the other day about paying off my mortgage. I don't say that as if like I got a pile of money that I can pay my mortgage off. I was just imagining the day of paying off my mortgage. And I probably got my mortgage close to 30 years old. I can't remember exactly. And so 30 years beyond that, if I pay it off faithfully each month, right, when I'm 60-ish, my house is paid off. And then 10 years later, I probably die. 
and someone else gets my house and starts their 30-year mortgage, right? How meaningless is that? But that's what he's going to kind of tell it. Like, there's nothing evil. There's very good things about having a house. But you go, man, I, this is just a gerbil wheel. I'm going to die and someone else is going to come and then they're going to die and someone else is going to come. This is why in James 4, verse 14, he tells us, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I don't know if we think of life that way. Everything is full of weariness, he says. It's full of tiredness. Just get tired. And then I get up the next day and do it all over again. And then I get tired. And then I get up the next day and I do it all over again. What am I doing? To what end is his question. He says, there's so much weariness, tongues can't even explain it. Eyes can't perceive it. Ears can't comprehend it. This is where he ends up. This is a real like depressing thought we'll just sit in. Nothing changes. And I can change nothing. Oh. Now if you stop there, right? That's like, great. Let's just drink and die then, right? We have to go there. But He doesn't want us to remain there. But I don't know if we ever go there long enough to really understand what He is going to put forward about life. We must remember that Ecclesiastes are the, is the words of the wisest and the most seasoned of kings, providing the results of a comprehensive life experiment. And the older you are, and I won't for a second define what old is, but the older you are, the older you become, the more you are going to agree with Solomon's conclusions. Where you will say, yeah, that's pretty meaningless. And it doesn't matter what it is, whatever category we talk about, you, if you're older, you'll, become, you'll come to believe that. Now, the younger you are, and this is not to mock the youth, but the younger you are, the more apt you are to reject what Solomon says. Because you believe that there is something to be gained with more. If I have more blank, everything will be better. If I have more education, more pleasure, more success, more regard, more money. Everyone has their own more. What's yours? Solomon will say, like, I've had it all. Whatever more you can think of, I've had it. And it doesn't satisfy. It's interesting, we're in a more society and, and the perpetual building of storage facilities around our community, it's amazing. They go up all the time. And you're like, man, people have bought so much stuff. They need a storage facility because it doesn't fit in their home to hold their stuff. But they keep building storage facilities. So people are still buying more stuff. And 
what it actually shows us is not only is there a conviction that more stuff is better, the more they build, they realize that more stuff doesn't actually satisfy. It just begins to enslave. As Tim Keller famously said, it's not that we want bad things, it's that we want good things too badly. Solomon is addressing those who are busy for more. Perhaps that's you. He's addressing those who are too busy to rest. He's addressing those who are too busy for God. He's addressing those who are too busy building a life, a life they imagine, that they fail to actually enjoy the one they have. Solomon is addressing the spirit of the materialist. The one who approaches creation without reference to the Creator and seeks to find in it that which creation was never designed to provide. You see, Solomon's going to argue that it's not that something's wrong with creation. It's our use of it that is the problem. It's what we're seeking to get from it that's the problem. We enjoy, dare I say, worship creation when it's designed to actually lead us to the Creator. And we seek for things in creation that only the Creator can provide. That's why life is meaningless. Now the second phrase that he uses is under the sun. This phrase is used 37 times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. We read it in beginning in verse 9. He says, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after under the sun. This phrase, under the sun, gives us a context of where this experiment took place. Life under the sun is life on earth and all that life includes. If I ask, what is included in your life? You would name all kinds of things. Certainly relationships, food, drink, laughter, sadness, work, parenting, politics, justice, religion. All these things make up life. It describes life under the sun. And every new generation comes, and you know what they do? They look down on the previous generation and go, they didn't have it figured out, but we do. We know the key to life because we have something new. Every generation rises up and either declaring it publicly or thinking it privately, they believe that those who came before them missed the point or focused on the wrong one, and they've figured it out. A new way of thinking, a new invention, a new way of doing life to leave a different kind of legacy. You know what Solomon says? There's absolutely nothing new. Nothing. And anything that feels new will soon be forgotten. I've often thought about the different inventions that bless our lives these days. Things like the combustion engine. And other than the guy who's really good at trivial pursuit, do we know who invented the combustion engine? 
I don't. I'm sure someone does. But think of all the different things that have come into our lives. I don't mean just in the next last 25 years, but many years before that, things we depend upon. Who invented them? Who knows? Who cares? They're forgotten. And so happens with us. And so Solomon sees that and is like, man, no, no one remembers. And if they do remember, the person's dead, so what do they care? How meaningless, he says. There's no lasting legacies. Now he assumes you won't believe him. This is why he writes in verses 13 to 14, I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. But I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all its vanity and striving after the wind. He says, I've done it all. I know it all. And again, many of us are like, well, what about this? It's different, Solomon. I mean, it's been a, several thousand years since you were around. Things have changed. It's like, nope. Hasn't changed. There's nothing new. You know what he says ultimately? I've been to the top. And he has. He says, I've been to the top. I've seen everything you can see. I've done everything you can do. And I've concluded that it's all empty. Now, I listened to a sermon of a guy preach this, and he brought up an illustration that I thought I was the only one that knew. So if you ever hear another sermon, you hear this illustration. I didn't steal it from him. I've been saving it for a long time. Can't believe he knew this, but I digress. If you were around in the 90s, I have to say that now, which is kind of strange. There was a tennis player. His name was Boris Becker. You remember Boris Becker? Okay, got a few people. I don't follow tennis, but Boris is a cool name, and he was a good tennis player. If you look up Boris Becker today, you'll see his life is in shambles. Well, it wasn't always in shambles. In the 90s, he was at the top of his game. He was one of the youngest uh, winners of, of a championship. I think he was 17 when he won, won his first. But he won many. And eventually, in the early 90s, he became number one in the world. The best tennis player alive. And reportedly... When he, would ask, when he was asked by an interviewer, what did it feel like? You're number one. You've arrived. You've achieved everything that you've devoted your life to up to this point. How does it feel to be number one, better than anybody, wealthy, successful, popular, respected? And he said this. I wish someone would have told me that when you get to the top, nothing's there. Nothing's there. That's Solomon. But he's been to the top of everything. And he's coming back down to say, nothing's there. Life apart from God is a search for meaning in creation apart from the Creator. And that's a life that can only end in emptiness. There's a tremendous number and a growing number of people in our lives who are experiencing that sense of emptiness. And they're asking, which they've been asking since the dawn of creation, what is life all about? Now, this deep satisfaction as he experiences the world and goes, man, this world just 
stinks. It's bad. It's broken. It's unsatisfying. You need to understand that the reason he can say that is because he knew or knows that it was once good. When anyone declares something evil, when anyone declares something broken, when anyone declares something bad, what they're kind of implying is that there's something that is good. There's something that is not broken. There's something that you know, was and has been ruined. The book of Genesis records that God created the world in six days, and after each day, what did He say? This is good. 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 And then final day, this is very good. Life under the sun had a good beginning. But that time has passed. And everything is now empty because everything is now under a curse as a result of sin. But we don't believe that. On the whole, the book of Ecclesiastes could read like a really long complaint. Like, man, this guy's just a downer. This guy's just a pessimist. He's just a whiner. Come on, man, there's some good things about life. One writer put it this way, Ecclesiastes is no tantrum. Instead, wisdom teaches us that tears, at their best, pay tribute to something that was once cherished, and it was wise to cherish it. We lament the loss of genuine good, and the curse of once Eden remains. And what's amazing about Ecclesiastes is sprinkled throughout the book, he will call us to joy. He will call us to, you know what? This is all we can do with life. Enjoy the work that you have been given to do. Enjoy food. Enjoy drink. Have some joy. Like, man, how can you say have joy sprinkled through all these like diatribes and complaints and, and, and descriptions of how horrible life is? And what he is calling us to do actually is to enjoy what I call the residue of Eden. The echoes of Eden, if you will. The things like work that were actually given in the garden. Food and drink. The things that were given in the garden. He will warn us at different times not to let the things you can't control rob you of the things you actually can enjoy. He'll call us to joy. And it's a joy of what was and still has kind of bits and pieces of and look forward to the joy that is yet to come. Under the sun. Now, last word that is used. I said under the sun was used 37 times. I actually think it's 29. The last one is another one that's used almost just as much as the word for meaningless or vanity or emptiness. Some would argue that as we search for meaning, the reason why we fail is because we don't have enough knowledge. If we had more understanding, then life would make sense. Well, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, disagrees. He says in verse 13, and I'll paraphrase several of the verses down there, I applied my heart to seek out wisdom to what is done under heaven. I've seen everything that's done under the sun. All is vanity, striving after the wind. And I have applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceive this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. In much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. 
Solomon was given a divine gift of wisdom. He prayed to God. God said, ask me for whatever you want. I want wisdom. And that gift became a curse. Solomon seems to say that the smarter or wiser you get, the more miserable you become. And then you die. It is, in his own words, an unhappy business that God has given us. The business of seeking answers to life's deepest questions. Now this is the first place where he mentions God, and he will mention God 38 more times, which is about the same time, number of times he mentions meaningless or vanity or vapor. He is trying to use the emptiness of life apart from God to lead us to God. To actually ask hard questions about God, which will make us very uncomfortable over the next few weeks. Because he doesn't just want to dispel dispel our misconceptions about creation, right? Looking to creation for that which it can't provide, security, hope, joy, All those things, if you try to find those in creation, it's just a matter of time or age or tragedy. They will take that away. He says, don't look to creation for that which God Himself, but as you look at God, He actually wants to break down some of our delusions about what God is like. It's a sobering moment to realize that God isn't made in your image. That you're not just worshiping an actualized version of yourself that feels like you, that thinks 